Welcome to this week's episode of London Heal. I am your host, Tatiana Kazesanov. For many years, we thought that the brain didn't have its own immune system, that the blood-brain barrier provided an effective shield from everything in the outside world and there was relatively little interaction. We now know that that's absolutely not the case. And in fact, this is now becoming a very, very interesting and avidly researched field. And my guest this week is going to talk to us all about the role of microglia in this system, and he'll explain exactly what they are and what they do. And so, first of all, I would like to introduce Professor Hugh Perry. Professor Hugh Perry trained as a neuroscientist at the University of Oxford. His research first focused on the circuitry of the visual system and its function. But in the mid-1980s, he became interested in the role of microglia in the brain and the field of neuroimmunology, which examines the interactions between the immune system and the brain. He worked in Oxford until the late 90s and then moved to the University of Southampton, where he continued to work on interactions between the immune system and in particular how systemic infection and inflammation play a role in driving the progression of neurodegenerative diseases such as Alzheimer's. He recently moved to UCL, my alma mater, by the way, <laughs> um, to become the theme lead in neuroinflammation at the UK Dementia Research Institute. And he is also Emeritus Professor at the University of Southampton. He's published more than 300 scientific papers, is a fellow of the Royal Academy of Medical Sciences. And he was a member of the Nuffield Council of Bioethics, a recipient of the Royal Society of Wolfson Research Merit Award, is a fellow of the Brazilian Academy of Sciences, and was chair of MRC Neurosciences and Mental Health Board, and a member of the MRC Strategy Board, and chair of the Oversight Board of Dementia Platform UK. Wow, <laughs> I'm so very honoured that you took the time to speak to me today. So thank you and welcome, Hugh. Well, pleasure to be to be involved. Uh, I'm very happy to talk to you. Wonderful. So let's start off right at the very beginning. I opened up this uh, conversation by talking about the fact that we, until relatively recently, didn't actually think that the brain had an immune system and that the blood-brain barrier did all the work. Would you like to talk a little bit about that comment on that evolution? So I think that's a, a very good place to start. So the idea that the brain was isolated from the immune system by the presence of the blood-brain barrier was a, a, an important idea. And then in the 1980s, I uh, got involved in studies of these cells in the brain that we now know as microglia, but uh, were, of course, and are uh, part of the immune system. They, really, they are uh, a, a tissue macrophage. So the, the macrophages, as their name implies, are the big eaters, and uh, they're found in all tissues. Uh, uh, we think of them as, as circulating in the blood as monocytes, but the macrophages in all our tissues are really the first line of defense against injury and infection, but they also play a role in development of organs and also in the homeostasis of organs, keeping uh, them in their normal healthy uh, state. So in the 1980s, uh, there came new tools available to study and identify macrophages in tissues, and that's what we did. So 
So we showed that there were indeed a population of tissue macrophages, the microglia, in the brain, and uh, that they were part of the immune system in the brain. So this then uh, begs the question uh, as to what they do uh, in the normal healthy brain. And uh, the, this role in, in keeping the brain healthy uh, involves several functions. So one function of the, of the, the microglia that's well studied now is that they clear up dying cells in development. Hard to believe, but in the course of the development of our brain, uh, there are more than twice as many cells generated in the embryo as will survive into adulthood. And many of those cells will die, the excess cells will die, and they will be eaten by these macrophages. After that developmental period... Is, it, uh, is that what's known as um, synaptic pruning? Is that the same, same thing? So this is part of synaptic pruning, yes. Right. So the, the microglia are involved in removing not only the excess cells, but the excess connections. And this term synaptic pruning, uh, pruning of the supernumerary synapses, has really become an area of considerable interest. So the microglia involved in normal development play this cr clear critical role. And whether this abnormality of this synaptic pruning in development uh, predispose people to uh, diseases uh, of, the, of the brain, psychiatric diseases of the brain, is really a, an area of, of considerable interest and a lot of research, uh, many labs around the world. So after the developmental period, these microglia, they come under, they are, they're already under the control of the brain microenvironment, but even more so in the adult brain. And there are molecules present on nerve cells next to the microglia and astrocytes also next to the microglia and, and in the fiber tracts. And these molecules, in some way that we don't really understand, uh, they keep these, these microglia under tight control, and people have thought of them as, as quiescent, resting, and resting, and so forth. And, and this resting state is really a, a misnomer. Uh, about 10 years ago, some fabulous imaging studies were done in the living brain of, of experimental animals, anesthetized experimental animals, where uh, the microglia could be visualized in the living brain, on the, in the, the upper layers of, of the brain. And, and these microglia are moving their processes all the time. They're, they're surveying the environment around them. Uh, and this surveying process is now they're referred to as surveillance microglia. So in the healthy brain, like what... The, the brain's policeman, so to speak. Yeah. Sort of like the brain's policeman. Or, okay. or actually people have met, drawn parallels with dustbin men or, and women going around uh, collecting debris. So if there's any debris present, uh, molecular debris, they will phagocytose it. They will engulf it uh, and eat it. There's also a lot of interest in whether these moving processes... Uh, are engaging with synapses, the connections between the, the nerve cells, the neurons, uh, and whether this surveying of synapses might play a role in, in synaptic health or synaptic connectivity, the strengths of the signals and monitoring the signals. 
And again, there's much debate about this, debate about its significance, because it's also been known for a long time that another non-neuronal cell in the brain, uh, the astrocyte, uh, they have their processes next to the synapses too. So these non-neuronal cells clearly play an important part of the brain, and the microglia might be surveying the synapses in some important way. Precisely how? Uh, remains to be established. Uh, in the normal brain, they, they persist there throughout life. Uh, they divide occasionally to make a daughter cell uh, or a pair of daughter cells, uh, but the numbers remain relatively constant throughout life. So our microglia are with us uh, from uh, early embryogenesis all the way through uh, to the end of our life. And they are indeed part of the immune system they uh, make uh, molecules found in many other uh, macrophages in other tissues uh, in the body, and uh, they're clearly an important part of our biology that had been, uh, one doesn't like to say neglected, but perhaps uh, underrepresented in the research repertoire. Right. When you mentioned that they're part of the immune system, um, am I correct in, in reading that um, they actually, embryologically speaking, don't even stem from neuronal tissue, but from um, the bone marrow? Is that correct? So they sort of wander into the yeah. brain at some point? So that, that, they're thought to be, um, uh, to originate from the bone marrow. And it was thought that during the life of mammals, humans and, and experimental animals, that the microglia in the brain were being constantly replaced uh, by cells from the bone marrow. Uh, and it, this was true of most other tissue macrophages as well. Uh, the field has changed. Uh, the, the, the details are a bit complicated, but uh, in early embryogenesis, there, there's a part of the embryo known as uh, the yolk sac, and these early uh, macrophages arise in the yolk sac, and then they migrate around the embryo and populate uh, different organs, the skin, uh, the liver, uh, the brain, and so forth. And uh, it has become apparent in recent years, using uh, clever technology, uh, tracing technology, that these cells from the yolk sac populate the brain, and then they stay there forever, all our life. Uh, what's not clear um, is under what conditions other macrophages might enter the brain. Uh, and when the, the, the cells are very long-lived, uh, you might ask, well, maybe occasionally some cells are coming from, as you said, the bone marrow. Um, it appears, at least in, in the mouse, which is the best investigated mammal, uh, that this, uh, they are not replaced by the bone marrow, even in many disease states. Where the brain is directly damaged, such as in trauma and stroke, then indeed the monocytes from the blood originating in the bone marrow invade the brain. And there's then, of course, a lot of interest in what role do they play in, in acute brain tissue injury? Are they uh, just mopping up the debris, or are they contributing to disease outcome? Mm -hmm. So that so the the healthy state, the microglia are on their own, and 
movement from uh, the blood, little or no. Uh, we, of course, don't know this in humans. We, we, uh, <laughs> it's difficult to label the cells in humans and then have a look. Um, so uh, we're extrapolating from, from studies in mice to make that statement. Wonderful. So these little, little microglia that are sitting there and they have their processes and they're moving all the time. So can you walk us through what, what happens when, when something goes wrong? Okay, so when something goes wrong, and, and there, there are, of course, many different disease states in the brain uh, when something goes wrong, uh, and probably one that is really at the top of many people's thinking about brain diseases, uh, and I'll use it as an example, Alzheimer's disease. Mm -hmm. So Alzheimer's disease uh, is the most common form of dementia, and uh, many people will know that in the UK, there, is, there are about uh, 800,000 people with dementia, of which 70% or so will have Alzheimer's disease. There are other diseases that cause dementia, Huntington's disease, Parkinson's disease, and so forth. But uh, Alzheimer's disease is the most common. And what happens in this disease, uh, which is seen in the brains of the, at the end of life of people with Alzheimer's disease, is that uh, a protein, two proteins have accumulated abnormally in the brain. And one of them is called uh, a beta and forms blobs outside the neurons in, in the surrounding space, called, um, and these are called amyloid plaques. And then uh, within the nerve cells, uh, another protein accumulates called tau. Now, uh, the dementia is associated with a loss of cognition, uh, a loss of, of short-term memory, uh, and many other uh, psychiatric components. Well, people will be aware of that. Uh, uh, elderly people with Alzheimer's disease may be depressed. They may be seriously apathetic. Uh, they may become agitated, they may be angry, and so on. Uh, all This whole spectrum of, of disease. Uh, and the, the idea that the microglia might play a role in this disease is really, a, in some ways, an, an old idea, but precisely whether they were simply responding to the pathology, i.e. a consequence of the disease, whether they contributed to the disease or whether they were causing the disease was by no means clear. Most people, I think, uh, one would say until uh, the, the 2000s or so, really thought the microglia were simply responding to the death of the nerve cells. So when these abnormal proteins accumulate, uh, they kill the nerve cells. And this is why. Alzheimer's disease is referred to as a progressive neurodegenerative disease. So, so what changed the field? And the most amazing thing that changed the field was the genetics of Alzheimer's disease. And uh, this involves an international collaboration. I think it's important to recognize this is work done by literally dozens of, of laboratories joining together and pooling their information, uh, DNA samples from people who had been diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. And the most recent studies involve samples from more than 75,000 people. Wow. So getting organized to do this is, is a tour de force. And I, 
think some of the leaders in this field are, are really doing a fantastic job. And what came out of the analysis of the genetics uh, was really remarkable. So it was already known that uh, there's a rather rare forms of familial Alzheimer's disease. So some families carry uh, mutations in importance uh, that modify the protein involved in uh, the formation of the amyloid plaques. And these familial uh, diseases account for a few percent uh, of all cases of Alzheimer's disease and have been very influential uh, in the way that people have studied Alzheimer's disease. Then there was another protein, a, a, a lipoprotein that, that's in, involved in, 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 in many different processes uh, called apolipoprotein E, and this was the major risk factor. And this was detected genetic risk factor some 20 plus years ago. But what these recent genetic studies show, because of the scale of the number of samples, that they could now detect genes that would have each one alone would have a small effect. And of the 25 or so genes uh, now described, and there's a, the list grows uh, all the time, uh, a few of these were genes uh, that code for proteins expressed on macrophages uh, and also on microglia. So, this suddenly woke people up to the idea that not only were the microglia becoming responsive in the brains of people with Alzheimer's disease, but actually they were contributors. Your genetic risk for getting Alzheimer's disease involves the immune system. And I think this is really a significant change. So they're not the microglia are not changing because uh, they, uh, they're responding to the degeneration of nerve cells, they're contributing to the disease as well. So, very interesting. So, so what do I mean by, by changing in response to the nerve cells? So, so the microglia in, in the normal healthy brain, we refer to them as a surveillance microglia in a, a, a resident or and homeostatic state. But when the brain is injured or there's the presence of dying nerve cells, uh, the microglia change their, their shape. Instead of having long, thin, delicate processes, they become bigger, fatter, uh, thicker processes, uh, and simply down the microscope, they look more aggressive. Um, they also change the proteins that they express on the, on the surface of the cell, and they express the, the, the very broad repertoire of, of molecules that they can also secrete from the cell. And, and this is referred to as an activated microglia. So these activated microglia, present in many different disease states, now are seen in Alzheimer's disease as contributing to the disease. Interesting. Very interesting. In, what, in which way do they contribute? Ah. I think actually, yeah, I'll let you carry on with that one. <laughs> so that is now um, the big uh, question, I think, in the neuroimmunology uh, of Alzheimer's disease. What are the microglia doing in this disease state? How are they 
uh, contributing to disease. So a number of different lines, and in fact, there are more than we can probably talk about, but just to give you a flavor of a, a few of them. So I said that the microglia uh, are clearing up the molecular debris, uh, the dustman of the, of the brain. And uh, it's pretty clear that in the Alzheimer's disease, this abnormal protein amyloid is accumulating in the brain in these plaques. So one possibility is that it's a failure of, their, of the macrophage phagocytosis. They were phagocytosing the debris, and now they, because of the small genetic changes in uh, maybe a dozen different proteins, uh, they seem to be uh, less capable or less eager to recognize this amyloid peptide and uh, phagocytose the debris. So one is it's a failure of clearance, uh, and that's a bad thing. Another possibility is that uh, when the cells are activated, uh, so this abnormal protein that's misfolding and accumulating in plaques uh, binds to the surface microglia where there are receptors for this uh, peptide, and uh, this then contributes to the activation. And what it does is it then makes the microglia potentially secrete molecules that can damage nerve cells and damage their synapses too. So this is a potential contributory route. The synaptic pruning that you referred to earlier uh, also may play a role. And there's uh, a number of people who are working on the idea that the, the, this uh, amyloid peptide uh, damages the synapse, and in the earliest stages of this damage, the microglia recognize that this is a damaged synapse and phagocytose it. So they're, they're undoing some of the circuitry that they contributed to uh, early on. So bit by bit, uh, the, the number of, of possibilities is increasing as to precisely what do the microglia do. And uh, this can't be easily investigated in people uh, at the early stage of the disease. But at the late stage of the disease, when, when individuals have died with the disease, it's now possible to take the tissue from people who've been generous enough to donate their brains and uh, isolate the microglia. So that when somebody dies um, and they've donated their brain, uh, the, the microglia are isolated from a small part of the brain. And then using uh, techniques uh, of molecular biology, it's possible to, to look at all the different messenger RNAs that are expressed in uh, that microglial cell. And uh, some of you will know that uh, the, the, the RNAs, the, the mRNA, the, the messenger RNA, is what carries, which is then translated uh, into proteins. So we can get an idea of the signature of these microglial cells. So which proteins have gone up, which proteins have gone down, and can this give us an insight uh, into what the cells are doing? And there's a huge amount of activity uh, in this domain, both uh, in the study of the human post-mortem brain and also in animal models that have been made 
to mimic aspects of Alzheimer's disease. So, so just to capture that again, the microglia, was it uh, simply a consequence of pathology that they were in this activated state? Were they contributing disease or were they causing disease? Unclear. Genetics now tells us for sure they are contributing to the disease and a significant part of one's genetic risk of getting Alzheimer's disease is uh, this uh, family or collection uh, of genes that encode for proteins expressed on the microglial cell. Right. Um, where, did, where does the beta amyloid protein come from? Because I had thought at some point it was even speculated that it was produced by the glial cells as a, as a sort of form of protection to wrap up pathogens and, and basically kind of package them so out of the way. Is that, is that still a current idea or well no, no. In, in in alzheimer's disease that the the the, a, the app uh, protein which is then cut up in in a number of different ways uh it's made by the neurons it's made by the neurons. So, so our neurons make it all the time where we all have uh this protein uh, amyloid precursor protein as it's called expressed in our brain and uh, it can be either cut up in a way that, that is uh, innocent and, and uh, does no harm, or it can be cleaved into, to make a peptide of about 40 amino acids or so um, that can then uh, cause problems. And it's the accumulation of this, these peptides, uh, around about 40 amino acids, plus or minus a few, uh, that seem to uh, be really uh, driving the disease process. So one of the things we might think about is, is how could we encourage the microglia? Is this the way to go, to encourage the microglia to clear this amyloid uh, peptide from the brain when it's been accumulating in plaques? And uh, one doesn't like to dwell on disappointment, but of all the things that have been done in recent years in Alzheimer's disease, one of the really disappointing things has been the failure of clinical trials uh, to encourage the microglia to clear this debris. So let me just tell you a little bit about it. Um, it was demonstrated in animal models of um, uh, Alzheimer's disease. So it, it's possible to generate a mouse that expresses the human gene that gives rise to this amyloid. And uh, when it's done the appropriate way, uh, the mice accumulate amyloid plaques in their brains and they show memory loss and some of the other features, behavioral features of, of Alzheimer's disease, if, if the behavior in the mouse and human can ever be directly compared, but at least similar. Um, and some of the pathology is similar. So it gives rise to loss of synapses and so forth, activated microglia. And uh, 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 a scientist in the United States, Dale Schenk, had this, I thought it was just a brilliant idea, that maybe you could encourage the microglia to eat the amyloid if you immunized people against this protein. So the idea that you would immunize a mammal against one of its own proteins sounds a bit dangerous, but 
he went ahead and did it. And the, the outcome was amazing. The antibody gets into the brain, which only a very small proportion of antibody ever enters the brain, bound to the amyloid plaques, and then the microglia have receptors for this antibody, and they eat up the amyloid plaques. They literally cleared away the amyloid plaques. Amazing. And when I saw the paper, I thought it was really amazing. Uh, unexpected to, uh, from, from a, a design point of view. Yes, it worked just as you'd expect, but it was amazing. So uh, a number of companies then decided that this would be an important thing to investigate in humans. And there have been a number of trials where people have been, they were, the first trial was they were vaccinated, actively vaccinated, which is not a good idea. So what they did instead was to deliver the antibody uh, into the, the patients, and you can give the dose appropriate amount. You can change the antibody that binds to different parts of the amyloid protein and so on. And indeed, uh, it appears that you can encourage the microglia to eat the amyloid plaques and digest those plaques from the human brain because there are imaging techniques that enable us uh, the amyloid um, Unfortunately, just a month ago, uh, Biogen, a big company in the United States, uh, one of several who've been doing these kind of, uh, of uh, studies, announced that their trial had failed. Very expensive trial, many people involved, but the patients had no benefit from having the amyloid removed, which is a bit puzzling because the amyloid plaques seem to be a very important part of pathology. Mm -hmm. So that the, the, the issue now is why doesn't it work? Why does why if you encourage the microglia to take away the plaques, why has this not been a benefit? And one idea is that well, it's just not early enough. So by the time people are diagnosed with the disease. Uh, the disease has progressed, gathered so much momentum that even if you take away the plaques, that's not going to be the answer. You need to do maybe something else as well. Or maybe you just have to get, go earlier. So in many diseases, as uh, people know, uh, the earlier you treat, the better. Cancers being, of course, a good example. Uh, so here we have a, a condition where very early diagnosis may be needed to change the course of the disease, at least if one's going to use this immunization strategy. So that's been a bit disappointing, but it does show the principle that microglia can be directed to phagocytose, eat uh, abnormal proteins in the brain, and at some stage that might be beneficial. Could be, however, that they're, they're also, when they eat more, uh, more of the debris, that they now make more um, secretory products that are themselves damaging. So this becomes a problem. So it's, it's going to be a balance to find out how to modify this microglia population in a way that's beneficial. And this leads to... Uh, uh, all sorts of other issues because the microglia are not all identical 
in different regions of the brain. That's the first thing. Uh, as more and more of these studies on individual microglia are being done on isolated populations of microglia, it's clear there's a lot of heterogeneity there. So there may be some microglia that are doing the damage and some microglia that are trying to do something that's particularly useful. Uh, we don't know enough about it yet. So finding the balance is going to be uh, uh, a, a non-trivial business. And, and really, dementia research, you know, it, it, needs, it needs more, um, uh, more money because it's expensive doing this research, but, uh, and, and more uh, really uh, the, the application of, of, these, uh, of the new technologies. So in the UK, just to give a UK perspective, uh, the Dementia Research Institute that um, was initiated in the time of, of David Cameron, who was a great supporter of dementia research, um, may have got a few other things wrong, but certainly um, <laughs> this is something he was he was a, a real um, champion for. Uh, is the dementia research area? So uh, the Dementia Research Institute, which is a collaboration between. The Medical Research Council and the two big uh, dementia charities, Alzheimer's Research UK and the Alzheimer's Society, uh, have set up this institute. There are six centres across uh, the UK, uh, Edinburgh, Cambridge, Cardiff, uh, Imperial College, um, King's College and headquarters at University College, uh, led by Bart de Struper, who is an internationally known expert in uh, the study of the amyloid protein and, and uh, all the associated components. Uh, and so this Dementia Research Institute is pulling together to find different routes into studying Alzheimer's disease and the other dementias. And uh, the microglia and neuroinflammation as a field uh, is an important part of that. Um, actually, my job is to the rubber band that joins many of these groups together. Fascinating. Um, you talked um, a little bit about um, Alzheimer's and dementia and the amyloid, but I think everybody who reads a newspaper probably saw the headlines that went through all of the newspapers and the news fairly recently about the association of um, gum disease with uh an increased risk for Alzheimer's, which would immediately say, okay, so there's an inflammatory process going on, which is physiologically and geographically close to the brain. And yeah. obviously something is going on there that actually can affect the brain. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think it's something that everybody's heard and potentially nobody understands. <laughs> So the, this is a, a, an area that is uh, really interesting, uh, Tatiana. It's um, uh, something we all know about. So we all know that our immune system talks to our brain. How do we know this? We know this because we've all felt ill at one time or another in our life. So we have an infection and we feel ill. And uh, what does feeling ill mean? Well, feeling ill, uh, the sickness behavior, as you might call it, is a change in our behavior that helps us deal with the consequences of an infection. So animal gets an infection, what does it do? It raises its fever uh, that prevents the, the, the proliferation of the bacteria or the virus. 
Raising a fever is metabolically expensive, so the animal has to lie down. The animal stops eating because um, the ingestion of some nutrients will promote the, the proliferation of the bacteria and so on. So this idea that when you get an infection, this changes behavior, this changes uh, one's physiology, all of this happens because uh, the infection communicates with the brain. And this infection communicates with the brain uh, in a number of different ways. So one way is, is a neural route. There are nerves that innervate um, the, the organs of the periphery. And these, uh, these autonomic nervous system, a part of our um, uh, automatic nervous system, if you like, uh, communicates with the brain. Uh, infection also initiates inflammation. And the inflammation in the periphery, uh, what it does is it generates uh, molecules, inflammatory molecules, that have the capacity to activate other immune cells and blood vessels and so forth. And these uh, uh, immune molecules, some of them called cytokines, uh, will communicate with the brain and activate the microglia in the brain uh, in a subtle way. And then the microglia in turn talk to appropriate nerve cell populations in the brain. So this immune to brain signaling is an important part of our physiology. And you can imagine if, if we didn't know about any infections or inflammation below the neck, to put it crudely, then, uh, of course, we could do ourselves a lot of damage. So this is a protective mechanism, important evolution, important pathways that really protect us uh, from uh, infections, injury, and so forth. So gum disease could be just a, a specific example of this, that uh, it generates inflammation and the inflammation is low grade and it communicates with the brain. Now, why might this be important in the context of um, Alzheimer's disease? So in the normal healthy brain, the microglia are kept under tight control. They're not um, overly busy with regard to the amount of molecules that they secrete. In the diseased brain, however, there are now more microglia. They proliferate. They've changed their, their signature, as I've described earlier. And this signature now makes them more ready to detect another signal. And we've referred to this, as some people do, as primed. So they're primed by ongoing pathology. So now a signal comes from the periphery into the brain that's about peripheral inflammation. And instead of talking to a cell that's turned off, down-regulated, quiescent, now an activated or primed cell, it now makes a big signal. So the sickness response evoked by a peripheral inflammation uh, is now exaggerated. It's now a maladaptive signal. And in some elderly people, this infection, for example, a urinary tract infection, for example, uh, this can lead to a, a devastating state called delirium, mm -hmm. where people become uh, so uh, uh, upset by the presence of this other infection uh, that they uh, lose their cognitive ability, that they lose their powers of attention, they can hallucinate, 
and become very ill indeed. So this state of delirium is a combination of, of inflammation in the periphery and uh, pathology brain, and then this can have quite a bad outcome. Uh, a bout of delirium is really not good for one. With regard to the risk, to go back to your uh, question about the gum disease, so gum disease is, is, is common, uh, uh, surprisingly common, and is caused by particular bacteria that grow in, in the oral cavity. And the inflammation that they provoke is low grade. So this is potentially uh, behind the activation of these microglia as the brain ages, the signal coming from the periphery amplifies the, the state of the microglia a little bit, uh, potentially over weeks and months. Now, whether it's a, this gum disease is a significant risk factor for um, dementia is, a, I think, um, an unresolved question. But it's interesting. I think it's very interesting, the idea that inflammation may be contributing to Alzheimer's disease, but inflammation below the neck, to put it crudely, are systemic inflammation. So to give you some idea what that might mean, uh, people with rheumatoid arthritis greater risk of Alzheimer's disease than the general population, presumably because of the circulating inflammation molecules that make the lives of people with with uh, rheumatoid so difficult. You know, they, they have inflamed joints that are painful and unpleasant. And of course, these immune molecules also to the brain. And that's why you feel pain, depression, uh, and all the difficulties of, of living with uh, rheumatoid. But people with rheumatoid arthritis who have been treated with one of the very potent anti-inflammatory molecules that are now available, they are significantly protected relative to those who are not protected. So the message, I think, is fairly simple. Uh, systemic inflammation communicates with the brain. It's part of our physiology. It's very important. It's important that we understand why we feel ill because of these pathways. But uh, in combination with uh, brain disease, then it can be really a significant um, uh, impact on, on someone's life. Right. So take-home messages, try and reduce your levels of systemic inflammation. <laughs> yes. So, so you know, health, uh, the, the things that, that, it, that generate inflammation are uh, uh, obesity, uh, leads to a more inflamed state. Uh, the, some of these other diseases, rheumatoid arthritis, um, uh, other uh, inflammatory diseases, and, and whether the treatment of these diseases, uh, like the example I gave you with rheumatoid, uh, can, or these other abnormal physiology states, uh, can be beneficial, I think is something that there's a lot of interest in, in this area, for sure. Fabulous. One thing um, I also wanted to talk about was that um, you've spoken a lot about this macrophage quality of uh, microglia, but fairly recently we've also begun to understand that the brain has its own kind of lymphatic system and that the microglia are involved in that. So once they've tidied up 
they also generate their own waste products, yeah. which like in tissue cells yeah. just gets dumped into the lymph system. So how does that work in the brain and what's the role of microglia? What do we know about that? Because that's a <laughs> relatively new uh, discovery, isn't it? Indeed. Uh, Tatiana, you're, you're, you've clearly been out there uh, reading the literature. On, I find on, this stuff so yeah. fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so the the the, the idea of, the, of the, so to take a step back, uh, the the blood brain the brain was considered an immune privilege site, as we said right at the beginning, in some way that it was separated from the rest of the body, and a, a very dominant concept, the idea that the brain is isolated from the rest of the body by the blood brain barrier, that special tight junctions between the blood vessels. Uh, stop easy communication between uh, molecules on one side versus the brain. Uh, and the other uh, is, is that the brain had no lymphatic system, no drug system. So as you mentioned, other organs have the, the lymphatic system that take, if put it crudely, waste products away from a site towards uh, the lymphoid tissue. So what happens in the brain? Does it really not have a, a, a lymphatic system? And is the blood-brain barrier absolute? Well, what's pretty clear, of course, is the blood-brain barrier is not absolute. Our immune system, uh, the brain knows about the immune system on the outside, and uh, the, the immune system knows about uh, the brain too, what's going on in the brain. So um, the, it was the idea that there was no lymphatic system came from morphological studies looking for these very particular types of vessels. And uh, however, it's been now known for a long time that uh, molecules drain out of the brain and they find their way to the lymph nodes in the neck and, and below. And the, the, some of the pathways had been studied uh, by a, a good friend and colleague in Southampton, Weller and uh, Roxana Carrara. And, and they were interested in how do these proteins get out of the brain? What are the pathways? And there's a quasi-lymphatic system uh, along the blood vessels of the brain called the perivascular drainage pathways. But they're not true lymphatic vessels. The lymphatic vessels uh, associated with the brain are found on the surface of the brain. And they have the particular markers that are associated with the vessels we refer to as lymph. They were actually described logically um, by uh, microscopists. Uh, these vessels on the surface of the brain were described by, mor by morphologists in the 1980s. But like many discoveries, it was kind of uh, published in a, in a journal that not everybody reads. Not everybody reads everything. And um, it was rediscovered, these vessels were rediscovered uh, because there were new markers for these lymphatic vessels. And uh, there's a nice statement uh, said by uh, one of the uh, neuroscientists a number of years ago advances in the brain depend upon the stain. So mm -hmm. being able to stain particular cells or being able to stain particular structures has given insight uh, into the way forward. So these, these lymphatic vessels on the surface of the brain have now been described in both prime, uh, 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 mice and primates and, and humans, and it's clear they are there, 
as in other tissues. They're not in the brain itself. They're on the surface of the brain in the, the overlying uh, uh, tissues, but they play the, the appropriate role of drainage. Now, whether that significantly changes um, in different disease states, I think we don't yet know. We know that in these lymphatic vessels, one can see immune cells, as you would expect. Some of the T lymphocytes are to be found uh, in these vessels. So uh, the, it's important to recognize they're there. Uh, whether they play a critical role in disease, uh, I think uh, we have, have to wait and see. Uh, but it's, it, it again, it, it erodes this idea that the brain was isolated from the immune system and a, a completely different box. So I, I think it's been important in, in that regard. Yeah. Right. Um, what is there anything uh, you mentioned obesity as, as, a, as a risk factor for inflammation? Is there anything that a, a normal person can actually do in their daily lives which can actually encourage microglial health and brain health in general? Um, for example, I know that sleep is a really relevant factor because some of these yeah. processes have, have been um, observed to actually only take place in, in deep sleep or certainly predominantly. Um, and I think a lot of people don't respect um, uh, or don't have a healthy sleep hygiene, let us say. Are there other things other yeah. than sleep or is, is sleep even relevant um, in, in this context? Uh, again, uh, a really good question. Uh, question. So sleep is, has been uh, proposed to be one of the important moderators of uh, the drainage of the Alzheimer's-related amyloid uh, peptide protein from the brain. Uh, and the appropriate amount of sleep seems to be important. So um, sleep would certainly be uh, one of the variables for, for brain health and, uh, and uh, whether, the, whether the microglia are critical in that component or whether it's other aspects of the physiology, I think is, is, is not clear to me anyway. Um, but it's clear that the appropriate amount of sleep is a good thing. Uh, I think with regard to systemic inflammation, I think we often... Uh, don't pay enough attention to our own physiology. As I say to people who work in, in my lab, if you get an infection and you feel ill and you think you have a, a, an influenza, then you should stay at home. You know, the, your physiology tells you that you should stay at home and there's good evidence that you will actually recover faster if you rest when your body tells you to rest. So simply overriding the one's physiological signals makes not a lot of sense. Uh, I th think that, that one of the other areas that's really come to the fore in, in brain uh, aging is vascular health. Hugely important to be aware of one's vascular health. Uh, one's brain is, of course, like other organs, but the brain even more so, dependent on uh, oxygen, glucose, appropriate nutrients, and so forth. And uh, if you're not looking after your, your physiology, then you're not looking after your brain physiology too. Mm -hmm. uh, as, as we age, it's clear that uh, you know, the aging of our blood vessels 
is a contributor to uh, to dementia. And uh, as we gain more insight in, into vascular biology, I suspect there will be many subtleties that are yet to be unraveled, but there are people uh, working on, on this area very actively. So I think you know, that, that everything that's been said about our heart that was good for our heart and mortality uh, levels have dropped dramatically, although we heard just recently that apparently it increased again. But uh, mortality uh, from, from cardiovascular disease has dropped dramatically in the last 5, 30 years uh, because of people adopting appropriate behaviors. Well, everything that's good for your heart, guess what? It's going to be good for your brain too. So exercise, good diet, uh, keeping active and so forth, all of these things are, are going to be important for sure. Wonderful. Where is um, the research going? What's what's on the cards? Where are people looking as far as microglia and their involvement? So I think if you if you went back five years or so when we didn't think microglia were particularly critical in these diseases, or maybe ten years, um, I think uh, that uh, it was just a backwater. Now that it's come to the fore, uh, one of the things that is uh, I think really clear. It's just how much technology has advanced. So the ability uh, to sequence the RNA species of single cells, uh, but many single cells, really large numbers, is, is just hugely important. Um, uh, imaging techniques are also hugely important in, in driving forward uh, our understanding uh, it's possible to, uh, to to image the cells in in, in the, the living brain. But then there's also the possibility to do genetic manipulations of cells uh, and, and, and whole animals, uh, mice again in, in particular, uh, that enables one to gain insights and pathways uh, in the brain. So I, I th in, in the microbiology. So I think if we were if we were to, to look at the research portfolio now, it has diversified dramatically. And I hope that from what people heard in the last hour, you can get some feeling for there are many different pathways to be investigated. There are the, 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 the moving the processes pathway. How important is this surveillance a job? Uh, how important is the phagocytosis job? How important is the secretory profile of these cells at different times? Among the secretory profile are the very small free radical molecules are important. Are the little peptides, the small numbers of amino acid molecules that are important? Or is it even the lipids that are important that are secreted? And then the surface of the microglia has a receptor repertoire that is, is frankly bewildering. I mean, there are now so many to get one's head around. So I, there are fascinating challenges of just the amount of data that can be generated. That amount of data now requires people we refer to as bioinformaticians, people mm -hmm. who know how to use the data scale. So those of you who use an Excel spreadsheet, um, just imagine in a, a thousand page uh, uh, Excel spreadsheet with just many, many, many columns. How do you manipulate this data and use it? And right now, there's a shortage of, of, of people 
people, and I, if for early career researchers, you know, if there's an area we need more people, it's certainly in this bioinformatics, people who are both biologists, but insights into how to uh, manipulate this data, how to compare the data sets that come from the brain of humans with the data sets that come from the brains of experimental mice. And then how to put that together and relate it to physiology, behavior, imaging, and so forth. These are the real challenges ahead. So the idea of something like the Dementia Research Institute is to get insight into the molecular players as much as possible, and then to integrate that with clinical data or data that comes from, from humans as well, uh, and see whether we can find new inroads to intervention. And I think no one can think about um, cancer biology. There's been amazing advances because the immune system can be used to attack, modify uh, the, the tumors and so forth. Um, similarly, I think it won't be long before we find new routes of how to modify the, the microglia and other aspects of the immune system uh, in the context of, of the dementias. But um, it's ongoing. There's lots of activity, lots of smart people joining it. So hopefully not too far down the line. It sounds a totally exciting, exciting future of, of the field. Um, yeah, if I had my time over, I think I'd definitely get into neuroscience. <laughs> Although I was in inflammation, which I think is, you know, also a fascinating field. Well, I think I think it's this interface. I, yeah, I think exactly. this is the really so, exactly. and and this is the interface. This is where the really new, exciting ideas are coming. And I think the skill sets of different people that we need to bring together are going to be uh, essential for progress. Fabulous. Thank you so much for this wealth of information. Um, I'm sure that my listeners um, are going to really enjoy this and, and have a deeper understanding of, first of all, what a remarkable thing our brain is and um, in its, all its amazing complexity. In fact, I often think the fact that more doesn't go wrong is, is, is really testament to, yes. to the brilliant design. Um, <laughs> um, yeah. I always ask three little questions to all of my guests at the end uh, of an interview before we wrap this up. So London Heal does actually look at the influence of mind, body and spirit on the functioning of the body and how we can be healthy and live healthy for longer. So I'd like to know, um, in your opinion, um, how do you actually define health? What does that word mean for you personally? Hmm. Uh Interesting. I haven't thought about this, but uh, off the cuff, I think the, the, the term that I would use is a sense of well-being. And though this ha was sort of politicized, actually, I think, again, actually by David Cameron, I think it really does capture uh, a sense that one's physiology is in a good shape and that one's mental health is in a good shape. So if you have a strong sense of well-being, of being well, this is very important. And I think that sense of well-being can be disturbed not only by things that happen in one intrinsic to one's brain, because one may have been unfortunate enough 
to be born with a genetic predisposition to a, a mental health disorder. But um, I think also one has to be aware that one's sense of well-being, one's body is sending signals to the brain all the time. And if you ignore those signals, I think... So my own view would be take be aware of one's own physiology and that awareness of one's own physiology and understanding that some some of those signals are for benefits. You know, the, the, the reason you feel unwell sometimes is for a very good reason. It's telling you something. Go and lie down. Do what you need to do. Uh, so I think that's, that well-being captures uh, a good sense of, of health and I think if you do the sensible things, eat well, sleep well, do exercise, engage with what's around you and appreciate what's around you, then I think you can capture a sense of well-being uh, without having to uh, fly around the world to do it. It's there. It's there where you are. Yes, I, living in the moment is a pretty good thing to do. Actually. Excellent advice. Absolutely agree with that. The second one I... Um, always think of is happiness. Um, I think a lot of people pursue happiness. Um, is that something that you actively pursue? And if so, how? Or do you not even think that that's important? Um, I have a, a very wise man in my life, which was uh, is uh, my brother-in-law, who's in his 90s now. And he survived uh, the Holocaust. He was in a camp as a young man and had a pretty terrible time and I can remember he told me as a teenager he said one of the things you have to remember is you have no right to be happy it's not a right you have to find it make it live it to yourself and that seems to me actually quite an important thing it's not a right it's about doing things that will generate I think this sense of well-being and I think, you know, as almost everybody knows, doing things for other people, doing things for the, the common good, the bigger good, one of the ways that you can be happier than doing things solely for oneself. Absolutely. Totally echo that. And the last one is serenity. I think that that's always a word that's a little underused and perhaps forgotten. And we all rush around and we need these terribly hectic lives and everything's pinging and beeping and buzzing in the background. Um, I think it's very important to have a practice on a daily basis where one just literally turns down the noise inside the brain as well as outside and, and centers and um, do you have a, a practice, do you, like a meditation practice or anything else where you actively try and turn down the noise? Um, I, don't, I suppose I don't really think about it that way. What I, I did like was that there was a very nice bit of research reported on the news just the other day that said how listening to nature for a few minutes of every day was a good thing. I am fortunate my wife and I are fortunate enough, that we have a beach hut. We have a shed on a beach here on the <laughs> south coast. And uh, if you sit by the shore and you can hear nothing else except the, the waves on the pebbles, it's a pretty nice place to be. And similarly, walking in the New Forest or some of the other woods around here and uh, just listening to the things that are in the woods or uh, around you, uh, 
that don't require you to have a pair of headphones um, seems to me a pretty good place to be too. So I think I have the good fortune to live in a part of the world where it's possible to capture that uh, without too much trouble. But I, I don't, I, do I actively do it? I suppose I just do it because I've done it all my life. So maybe that's, that's my serenity bit. Wonderful. So I'm afraid our time is over. I have a million questions. I could talk to you for hours and hours and hours, but I, I would be happy to do much so. more, much more important <laughs> things to do. But I really, really appreciate the fact that you took the time to talk to me today. And I'd also like to very much acknowledge and honor you for your work, because I think it's scientists like you that um, in the long term are really going to make this world a better place as we understand more and more and more about how our brains work and, and how important that all is. So thank you for your work. And well, nice to talk to you, Tatiana. Thank you for the invitation. It's been a pleasure. It was The pleasure was all mine. Thank you so much. Okay. So, dear listeners, I hope you enjoyed that episode with Hugh as much as I did. Um, first of all, apologies. There was a little bit of crackling going on in the background. Um, the connection wasn't great. I hope that doesn't impair your listening pleasure too much. Um, because the content was absolutely fascinating. Um, this is an area that I previously knew very little about and have been researching extensively because I think it's it's so exciting. I think we're going to find out so much more about the complexities of our brains, about the relevance of the microglia, the relevance of inflammation. And as Hugh pointed out, really what's fascinating is actually this conversation between the immune system and the functioning of the brain. It's these interfaces, which is really, I think, where a lot of the new work is, and studies are going to be done so that we really do start to really understand how these amazingly wonderful and complex brains of ours work and stay healthy and maintain a state of homeostasis and hopefully find ways how we can intervene and reverse some of the damage that's been done and more importantly prevent it happening in the first place. So as always I would like you please if you found this information interesting and relevant and of value please distribute it, share it shamelessly as I always say and uh, on that note go over please to iTunes rate and review us and of course subscribe to the podcast. You can also catch the podcast on londonheal.com. Every episode is listed there. And another factor of going over to londonheal.com is if you would like to get extended show notes so that all of those fascinating details are on um, in black and white in front of you, then please sign up over at londonheal.com. And for every future episode, you will receive um, all the links to the episode and the extended show notes for your pleasure. So my dear listeners, that leaves me as always to wish you health, happiness, and serenity. <laughs>